Hello and welcome to Talking Tourism, the podcast series especially for tourism operators and industry professionals. I'm Emma Azon Giacometti and I'll be your host for today's episode. Talking Tourism is an initiative of Tourism Industry Council Tasmania. TICT is the peak industry body for the tourism industry in our beautiful state of Tasmania. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. If you're a first-time listener and you enjoy today's episode, there are now over 100 episodes of Talking Tourism available from wherever you get your pods or you can jump on our website, www.tict.com.au and stream them directly from the Talking Tourism tab there. We're recording this podcast today on the lands of the Palawa and Pakana, and TICT offers its respect to the Tasmanian Aboriginal people, their elders, past and present, for their enduring care and management of these islands. Today's episode is brought to you by our partner NRMA Expeditions. NRMA Expeditions is one of the largest and fastest growing holders of tourism assets across Australia, and it's recently entered the Tasmanian tourism industry with the acquisition of some of Tasmania's most iconic destinations, including Freycinet Lodge, Cradle Mountain Hotel, Strawn Village and Gordon River Cruises. Thanks to NRMA Expeditions for their generous support of TICT and for helping to make this episode of Talking Tourism possible. Now, we're going to get stuck into today's conversation with Sam Reed. Sam is the co-founder of Willie Smith's Cider Makers, based in the Huon Valley. It's grown rapidly to become one of Australia's leading craft cider companies and the most awarded cider company in Australia. In 2014, Sam became president of Cider Australia, now the leading industry voice for the cider industry, and he's united the category with a focus on ciders made from 100% Aussie-grown fruit. He's also a director on Visit Northern Tasmania's board, and he's the managing director of Duquesne Brewing Co. Now, prior to his current life, working with his passion for great drinking experiences, Sam had a corporate career spanning 15 years and three continents working in senior marketing and innovation roles. And I'm really keen to understand how and why the transition. So Sam, welcome to Talking Tourism. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you having me on board. Great to have you here. And as I've mentioned, it's a pretty wild ride you've had. 15 years with three continents in senior marketing and innovation roles. Now you're doing things with apple cider and beer. What the heck came about to bring you to the bottom of the earth to play around with apples? I think a uh, reasonably linear progression almost, I'd say. I mean, I was... Um uh, you know, I did university in Launceston. Um, I did a commerce degree. I was, you know, very keen to get out of Tasmania, like everybody Classic. else seemed to be 20, 20 yes. years ago. And um, and so I joined a company uh, called BP, uh, which most people would know, on their graduate program. Um, and what excited me about that is they promised me uh, an international career where I could go and and see, you know, see the world um, on on their ticket. So uh, I thought that sounded pretty darn good. Um, I'm going to give that a go. So um, 10 years uh, with BP, um, ending up in the Castrol business, um, their lubricant business, which was purchased, um, you know, uh, probably 10, 15 years ago now. Uh, and then so I went from... Um, from mechanical lubrication to uh, to social lubrication when I joined Diageo, <laughs> which is uh, one of Australia, well, the one of the world's leading, uh, well, probably the world's leading uh, spirits um, businesses um, with brands such as uh, Smirnoff, Bundaberg, Kettle One, you know, Johnny Walker, Talisker, Guinness, etc. So, 
Um, when I returned to Australia, I, I, I really thought, what do I love doing? I love, and I thought, came to the conclusion, I love sport and I loved great drinks. And um, and I thought if I could join an alcohol um, business, then um, I could get the best of both worlds because mm. alcohol was is involved in a fair bit of sports sponsorship, I guess. Uh, so that was my uh, career journey there. Um, I finished off as uh, innovation marketing manager uh, at Diageo. Uh, and But whilst I was there, a good friend of mine got in touch. He'd tried to do a cider brand in the past. Um, it hadn't worked. Um, he wanted to get some kind of marketing input, I suppose, marketing strategy, innovation input on it. Uh, and we just started chatting. So, um, you know, one of the things for me, I'd been following the craft beer category as a lover of that for, for some time. And it was really clear to me that um, the craft cider category didn't exist. Mm -hmm. There was um, lots of sweet, fizzy drinks, ciders on the market, or really, you know, a lot of ciders made by winemakers, which were quite um, quite thin and astringent. And so neither of those kind of appealed to me. Uh, and I just thought there was a great opportunity to um, to do something, you know, a craft cider, I suppose, which which didn't exist at that time. Uh, so we got chatting, you know, really thought it needed to be from somewhere and it needed a great story behind it. It needed to have a great balance in flavour, you know, a little bit of sweetness, a little bit of dryness, um, just well-balanced and, and rounded flavour, I suppose. You know, obviously being uh, from Tasmania, the uh, thought of doing something uh, with Tasmanian apples, which, you know, we're obviously been famous for over the years and, yeah. and still are, made a lot of sense. So we met Andrew, my, my friend and I met Andrew Smith, Smithy, uh, my now business partner in Willie Smith's, and we started chatting. And our first chat catch-up was actually um, walking, walking Mona together and just talking about what could be. Smithy is a, obviously was a fourth generation and is a fourth generation apple farmer, mm -hmm. and um, and you know I was marketing and um, my friend Glenn was brand and creative. So, you know, after a, spending the day at Mona together, um, getting inspired by the many various <laughs> exhibitions and getting excited about what the future could hold for for I suppose craft cider in Tasmania, um, we kind of shook hands and decided let's give it a crack. So. That was 2000, February 2011, and uh, we launched in November, on the number, uh, 23rd of November the following year. So uh, there was the Tasmania International Beer Fest, I think, was where we launched the product at. Yeah, and um, you've given it a, a red-hot crack. I think, yeah, giving it a crack is probably underselling the Willie Smith story because it's sort of synonymous with Tasmanian cider these days. And to be clear, Sam, your background is, you know, very much in marketing and innovation. So you're not silly when it comes to marketing, particularly with your experience with other big brands all over the world. How did you know or did you, did you do any sort of market research that outside of you thinking there was a gap in the market that that the market actually wanted a craft cider from Tasmanian apples. Yeah, look, I'd love to be able to tell you I'd done lots of research <laughs> and been a good marketeer, but I, I love to back my gut as well. Yeah. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I think you can, if you do too much research, people and, and ask people what they want, they'll tell you what they know um, because that's their only frame of reference. Yeah, okay. Um, if you, really have a belief in something and a passion about something, I think you can make it happen. Um, and doing Willie Smith has given me probably even greater confidence that, that that's the case. Um, and, and so I actually don't believe in um, when, you're, when you're doing innovation and NPD that asking people what they want is a good idea because you'll get what's already in existence regurgitated back to you. So, no, it was, it was, it was gut feel, but obviously looking at um, major macro trends, I mean, 
organic has been growing for many, many years. Yeah. Relatively better for you has been growing. Craft was growing. I mean, that's just a culmination of so many of these macro trends coming together that it kind of made sense that it wasn't going to not work in a way. So, yeah. So, I guess then as a marketer, your job became convincing people that, yes, they do want this product that didn't exist before. What was that process like in, did you say, 2012 when you first launched the brand? Yeah, well, we were actually really fortunate um, because we launched at the same, at the um, Taste of Tasmania that year as well. Uh, that was our first year. There were five other new cider brands on the market that year as well. If I think back, Lost Pippin was one of them. Mm-hmm. Frank Cider was one of them. Pagan Cider, I think, too. Maybe Sprayton, I think, launched at the same time. So there was actually a little bit of a, a community of cider producers pushing the story. But the real challenge was, you know, there, and we worked with a gentleman, um, Chris Thompson, who's the head distiller at Lark, fantastic to learn from him, where we really, he was, you know, he'd been trying to sell Tasmanian whiskey to the world for a long time mm-hmm. and he came and helped us out. He was a good friend of Raoul Muir Wilson, who was our um, cider maker at the time, who's now at Moobrew. And he was like, you know, you've got to reach out there and engage them and reel them, reel them in and because, you know, the feedback was, no, I don't like cider, no, I don't like cider. Yeah. Um, and that was really, you know, they, they people only knew this sweet fizzy stuff or this, Fairly astringent, um, pretty, in, uh, how do we say, obnoxious, uh, <laughs> offensive uh, type ciders that were on the market um, at the time. And so, yeah, really just engagement, lots and lots of engagement, getting liquid on lips, I suppose, mm-hmm. was, uh, was the main focus. Um, and so we took that learning and just really went hard doing events. Well, I don't know, it feels like probably for <laughs> nonstop for about six years, really, just getting it out there, getting it in front of people. And importantly, telling the story because people are interested in stories, they're interested in real people, they're interested in real stories. Yes. And uh, obviously the Smith family um, have a real story to tell. Um, so I just felt that telling that story and then introducing the product and, and, and a different and a unique product along with that story has really stood us in good stead, I suppose. But it's yeah. been, um, I don't know how many times, I've probably told the story a couple of hundred thousand times it feels like um, over the years and yeah eventually we got some traction and um, and having all those other people come on board you know at the same time has helped too and I think um, Bill Lark was a you know a bit of a mentor of ours and mine it made it really clear that you can't do it yourself if you're growing a category you need other people and, and you've got to support everyone and uh, we've tried to support everyone and, and grow a category rather than necessarily just grow our uh, our brand at the brand. time because yeah yeah so you've you've sort of um, touched on that community of local cider makers which has probably grown I imagine since that first year and being so sort of hyper local and having that really Tasmanian theme to it and the local events being the environment in which you can launch these brands and grow them arguably. Tasmanians really get it, I think, certainly now that cider can be delicious and it can be a craft product that's really special and really drinkable and, um, you know, matched with food and and all that good stuff. And and that story really resonates with Tasmanians. Do you have to market it differently for interstate and international visitors? Uh, Well, when I said before, I'm getting liquid on lips, I mean, that really involved me and in later years, uh, national sales manager and other sales managers based on the mainland uh, to do events, you know, at the various um, beer and cider festivals all over Australia, particularly the Eastern Seaboard. So we really followed that um, that model and pushed that model for, 
you know, since 2012 to pretty much when the pandemic pandemic hit, to mm-hmm. be honest. We were fortunate in the early days because, we, you know, we were one of the few ciders there with a craft store to tell, um, and there weren't actually as many producers out there in, in beer as well. I mean, um, you know, I think later in the latter years, you know, now there's something like 600 breweries in Australia. It was a lot easier to get lost in the messaging. But yeah. in the early days when craft was still an evolving thing there were people who were people were really genuinely interested in the flavor profile and the uniqueness and difference and and the story so um it, we, we did that across australia i suppose you'd say and spent a lot of time and effort doing that did that story have to be told differently when it was told on the mainland for instance to interstate people who don't have that sort of connection necessarily to tasmania yet no i think tassie's got a pretty good connection to yeah. people and and in the early days i think it works really well i think what probably became a bit more challenging was when more cider producers started popping up craft cider producers started popping up everywhere um and as you talk about hyper local is, is an ongoing thing um, continuing to grow to this day and so when you know you're in new south wales talking about a tasmanian cider but then you've got a you know a couple of people from Batlow and a couple of people from Bilpin. Yeah. There, then people can identify more regularly, I suppose, with the with the local. So mm. I think that just probably made it a bit more challenging over the years. Uh, yeah, just a bit more competitive in that market space, I suppose. But I mean, we still stand by our product as, as really unique and differentiated. We're not doing festivals and events on the mainland as much since well since the pandemic. We've seen you know a significant decrease in our um. Now, man, mainland sales because we're very on-premise focused and and talking to influencers in the on-premise. Um, you know, Tasmania has a fantastic reputation for quality um, food and beverage. So, talking to the influencers such as the Soms and good bartenders, restaurant managers, chefs uh, really helped us, I suppose, in particular on the mainland and grow our brand. What yeah. does that look like? Is that a you or a interstate sales manager going into these venues and actually having a conversation and selling the brand to someone who can then on-sell it to a customer? What's the process there? Um, yeah, well, it's me and uh, and our sales guys, absolutely. Um, guys being, um, you know, we'd, we've had female sales representatives before. It's, it's a combination, I suppose. I mean, they definitely, the story is always stronger from a founder, but I can I can only be in so many places at one time, I suppose. So, you know, we've just been fortunate to have a fantastic team you know, national sales manager, Mike Connolly, he's unfortunately just moved on now, but um, was, you know, someone from the wine industry with some really good cred- credentials, a New Zealander, passionate about, you know, Tasmania and great quality produce. And so, you know, he's he can tell the story as well as anyone and and built some incredible relationships in the trade. And, you know, we, we tried to... Uh, where possible, bring these influences down um, to Tasmania, whether it was for the Midwinter Festival or um, just trade trips where we'd take them around to, you know, for a bit of bit of Tassie love and, you know, head into Lark and Moobrew and, and show them, you know, what Tassie's got to offer from a food and beverage place. Um, growing the Tassie brand with those people, I think, was as important as growing, as important in, in growing the Willie Smith's brand as anything else. Totally. I think, yeah, that connection to place and um, creating an ambassador who, you know, really understands not just your brand, but can connect it back to everything about the story because it means so much more when you're actually immersed in it, which is something I'd, I'd love to talk to you about actually, because when I think Willie Smith's, I think of that 
iconic shed out at the Huon Valley, which is a destination in itself. And I, I think you'd call that, you know, an agritourism sort of space in that you really get to experience and go behind the scenes and see the apples growing on the trees and and have a paddle of cider and understand how it's been made. Has the brand and product sort of evolved over the years to make more of that market? Because it really is a growing space in the tourism sector, this agritourism focus. Have you seen much change in your brand because of that? I wouldn't say that's seen much. We've, we've, the shed has obviously evolved um, along with our products evolving over the years with, the, you know, the addition of, uh, you know, cider apples, which we've planted and grown ourselves and, and worked with partners to grow. So cider apples are, I guess, the equivalent of wine grapes. You can't eat them. They don't taste very good, but right. they, they give you an incredibly diverse um, range of flavours as well, um, which, you know, we were really passionate about after you know, I went and spent a couple of weeks overseas touring cideries with uh, with our uh, with Raoul, our, our cider maker at the time, learning about you know our cider making techniques from um, you know Brittany, Normandy, Somerset, um, Devon, and um, you know and northern Spain as well, the Basque yeah, cool. region. So um, you know that was really clear that we needed to probably bring in some. Um, some new cider apples, some new varieties from from that trip, I suppose. But but in terms of the shed, you know, we always started off with the idea. You know, I, I actually worked on the Guinness brand, and I'd visited the Guinness storehouse a couple of times in Dublin, and and uh, you know, loved the Little Creatures brand, and had visited um, WA and, and been there. So it was always really clear for for us at the start that the um, the shed was going to be an experience, and. Um, and you know our tourism experience uh, for sure. Mm. Um, Glenn, our um, you know our co-founder, was said you know you guys are actually going to build a destination tourism destination here, something that's going to be you know r- renowned Tassie wide and Australia wide. And um, we actually Smithy and I kind of laughed at him at the time, but <laughs> he was completely correct. Yeah. And um, and uh, and that's you know we're really proud of of the shed and and the team there, and and it certainly evolved a lot from uh, my thinking at the start where I had envisage one person doing cheese plates standing behind the counter and telling the story of uh, over a tasting paddle. Uh, Not quite what it looks like. No, it's a bit different these days. And, uh, and you know, that's just um, evolved organically, I suppose, over the years, uh, no pun intended, with the, <laughs> with the team and, and just having a really clear, you know, purpose, I guess, behind um, Willie Smith's, of, you know, we wanted to really show people how good cider can be and, um, and the team's all been passionate about that. We've done a lot of limited releases, um, unique different products over the years to, to show that peep cider can be as interesting, different, unique and amazing as, you know, any craft beer, any whiskey. Mm. Um, and we still believe that to this day, of course. So going from laughing in the face of this is going to be a, a destination that people actually come to, it's going to be known around the country to that being your reality why has it become that? In your mind, how is it that the Willie Smith Shed is that iconic experience and destination? Why do people go out there and, and visit the shed? Because, you know, it's not exactly just in the middle of the city. It's off the beaten track a little bit, takes a bit of a drive, particularly if you're just visiting for a couple of days. But from what I can work out, it really is the sort of place that people want to include on their tourist itinerary. Why? Well, I think the number of reasons, there are a myriad of reasons. The first thing is obviously the staff and the team we've got. I mean, yeah. it's an incredible team, um, incredibly passionate about, you know, food uh, and beverage, um, about the Huon Valley, about telling the story of, of apples and the story of Willie Smith. So people get um, an incredibly authentic experience. I mean, 
it, it whilst it is um, attracts a lot of visitors, um, primarily we built it um, for the community to start mm-hmm. with. We really wanted uh, to build something that um, the Huon Valley locals would be proud of, and um, and you know the majority of when we started were people coming were the locals and who introduced their friends and their visitors to the site. So so really, um, I think it, it is about the team and it's about building you know something for the community that they want to share mm. and 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 I suppose and and that therefore has made it an authentic experience and it continues to li- deliver an authentic experience. Yeah. So it's not just you know we were very fortunate during covid to to still have the shed and still have local support you know we weren't um you know what we it, it it wasn't easy um and it was a struggle but we managed to kind of at least make ends meet because we had that local support still in it and it, we'd have never tried to make it entirely about tourism or, or mm. even primarily about tourism. We've tried to make it a great space that people can enjoy themselves in. And and I think the other really fortunate thing is it feels like you're in a different world um, when you're there. Yeah. Um, yet it still is only 30 minutes from Hobart. So. Yeah. Love to talk to you more about team stuff. Um, and, and I feel like this, this comes up a lot at the moment because it is really being felt pretty, pretty painfully by a lot of our operators that – finding, attracting, retaining team is really, really challenging at the moment, particularly in the hospitality and tourism sectors. And you've just mentioned that one of the great things about your team is that they're passionate about the story. Is that something that they come to you with or are you investing something into your team to create and um, maintain that passion? What, how, how are you managing um, you know, the staffing situation at the moment? Well, that's a good question, I guess. I think we just always had a strong culture. We started off very much wanting to have, like we wanted to have um, a great brand home. Uh, one of the things, you know, meeting the guys from Little Creatures who founded that and all the people there were really um, cool, interesting, unique mm. people, you know, doing their own thing. And so, you know, very early on, Smithy and I said, we want to we want a great culture in this business um, and we think culture is, well, you know, there's that old saying, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Yeah. But, um, but you know, we, we set about creating a great culture internally and um, and I think the Apple Shed has then actually, you know, taken that culture and is really now the heart of the business and the heart of the culture and, and they regenerate it constantly in their own form at the team at the Shed and... Um, and it and it is you know where the brand home is and so it, yeah I don't know if that makes any sense but yeah, people are no, attracted to that I suppose yeah if um, if you could describe you know good culture great culture what what does that actually look like what what are some some values that you see that sort of create and maintain that great culture within your business uh, well for me it's a great culture just is constantly renewing itself um, I think that's really important um, but you know I think. The major thing about a great culture is um, is probably um, being supportive of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, going that extra mile for your team. I mean, it's no different to uh, the Jack Jumpers. You know, it's a topical conversation right now. They've got the best culture, and they've got you know, and got you can see what what that does. And that's all about supporting each other, going that extra mile for each other. And and I suppose at the end of the day, making each other's jobs you know as easier as easy as they can be, and as fun as they can be. And I think. Um, you know, we've we've had um, awards uh, internally at Willie Smiths, and and we're you know the one that I'm probably the, always the most proud of is the um, Wolfpack Award, which is about you know supporting your um, 
supporting your your fellow team members and, cool. and I think that's you know really critical um, there as well. Yeah, I love that. Um, hey, Sam, you're, it, it would be remiss of me not to talk about what's going on in your world right now because while there's a fair bit going on with Willie Smith and your role there, you're now also the Managing Director of Duquesne Brewing Co. Um, and I reckon there's probably some cultural stuff that's seeping into that brand as well because we met your head brewer a couple of weeks ago and what a legend. He seems exactly like exactly the kind of person you're describing there. Tell us about Duquesne. Tell us about the brand, where it came from, what's on the agenda. It's um, really exciting actually to be starting something new again and, and doing a uh, I guess something you know in Launceston that I, I really feel can you know make a positive contribution to uh, to the Launceston hospitality and tourism scene. So, uh, but Duquesne was um, started three and a half years ago by Will Horan, who's um, partnering with on this new venture. Um, he was a guide on the Overland Track for many many years um, with Taz Walking Co. He worked, he was really passionate about home brewing and travel. He then, you know, won a home brewing competition at St John Craft Beer up here in Lonnie, and um, and then um, Paul Morrison from Morrison Brewing picked him up as his brewer. Uh, you know, he still kept in touch, and he'd do the odd trip with Taz Walking Co. And eventually, he and a few other guys convinced them that they needed to have a beer on the Overland Track because previously all they just had is wine, and the general consensus was that they had high end people who didn't want beer; they just wanted wine. So. Uh, so Will brewed a batch of uh, clean skin beer, you know, just in the silver cans, no labels, um, 40 cases. It got helicoptered up to the hut and um, what do you know, people love drinking it and it disappeared really quickly. So he had his second order really quickly. Um, it's, uh, you know, you had to come up with a name, you know, obviously being a guide and passionate about the outdoors and the wilderness and spending a lot of time on the Overland Track, you know, Duquesne Range came to mind mm-hmm. and having just been up there recently um, up to the labyrinth and seeing how majestic the Acropolis and the whole range looks from up there, I certainly could understand his source of inspiration, mm. um, just a magical part of the world. And uh, so, you know, he called it Duquesne. He got a friend of his, Sam Lynn, to do some illustrations um, that were on the original packaging and uh, and just started selling it, I suppose. So he was doing that on the side whilst working at Morrison Brewing and, and also Crown Cellars, which is kind of the leading independent bottle shop up here in Launceston, uh, and had been doing it for a while. And, you know, I, I loved the idea. I loved the concept behind the brand and and just felt, I suppose, once I decided to uh, base myself here in um, Launceston full-time following COVID, uh, that, you know, Launceston was probably, you know, lacking a, a really family you know, a friendly, family-focused, visitor-focused place for where you can take your kids and have a drink and they could run around and, a little bit like the Apple Shed, I guess. Sounds and, a whole lot like the Apple Shed, exactly, yeah. yeah. Know, exactly, it, it, is a, it is probably loosely based on the Apple Shed, I suppose, in, in the vibe anyway. If it ain't broke. And, um, and you know, there was there isn't a brewery cellar door in Launceston as well. We have Little Rivers in, in Scottsdale and um, Miner's Golden Ocho out at Beaconsfield and, and, and a it just seems quite crazy that and about 65,000, no, just <laughs> about 10 in Hobart. And so it just seemed like, you know, a fairly logical thing to do. And and obviously bushwalking's, you know, one of, if not the um, number one reasons people um, travel to Tasmania. And I suppose mm. something that, um, you know, really was pr- pretty obvious to me and speaking to more and more people is the first time many people experience bushwalking is when they might get to like the visitor centre at Cradle Mountain or 
over at a Freshenay in Wineglass Bay, and they haven't had any kind of background or understanding or guidance. This is independent travellers, of course. Taswalk and Co and Trek tours are, are different, but you know people just go to what they know, and there's so many great tracks that you know are off the beaten track, undiscovered. Um, you know, other than just having to go to Cradle the whole time or or Wine Glass the whole time, and I guess we just really want to introduce you know people of Launceston and visitors to uh, all the ama- other amazing um, bushwalking that's out there locally including the gorge on our on our doorstep really we're so fortunate to have that here and what a way to do it via beer well exactly that's right you know i thought uh you know let's uh try and get some health factor in it um <laughs> i'm not going to do a, a beard yoga studio but if we can do beer and bushwalking <laughs> they go pretty well together i was thinking so yeah do you think that those first beers tasted so good because they were helicoptered in uh, Does that make a difference? Well, I didn't get to try them, but um, it's got to be the most exclusive beer it, drunk in Australia. Surely that is it, it would have been brilliant. absolutely out yeah, of a no, silver tin. Yeah, I love definitely. it. Well, all the best with GK and Sam. It's been so cool to hear your story and to hear what's coming up next for you and Will and the team up there and Lonnie as well. Before I let you go, I do have to ask you the big seven. It's a prerequisite of joining us here on the Talking Tourism podcast. So are you ready? I am ready. We're doing the big seven questions. Number one, your favourite spot in Tasmania and why? Well, I wanted to just say there's... um Probably, I wanted to say anywhere, anytime I'm in the thick of a festival vibe, mm-hmm. whether it's um, Dark Mofo, um, Junction Arts Festival, Huon Valley Midwinter Festival, I mean, that's my favourite spot in Tasmania, to be honest. Um, but if I had to choose a place, I'd probably say the deck on a sunny day at mum and dad's place on in Binalong Bay. Amazing. And all the festivals yeah. sound great too. What about your favourite travel destination anywhere in the world? Tuscany in Italy. You know, I really think that Tasmania has can, has got a lot of similarities in Tuscany. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of amazing small producers doing some incredible things. We we're fortunate to have some of the oldest architecture in um, in the world, uh, and I think we can probably learn a lot from Tuscany in Tasmania. And, and you know, but they've got an incredible vibe. It's great to see, be part of all those small producers and surrounded by incredible architecture. So, yeah. They're doing any cider or craft beer over there? I was over there actually uh, for my 40th a few years ago and, uh, yeah, there was some craft beer starting to come up. Cider was probably just emerging. Um, so, yeah. Well, there you go. They've got plenty to learn from us as well. What about someone coming to Tassie for the first time in their lives? They're asking you the one thing they must do while they're here. What are you going to tell them? Tell them they're dreaming, that there's lots <laughs> of things they have to do, I suppose. But I, I, I don't know. I'd want to understand more about who they are um, and what they're into. Um, there's so many great experiences to have. I'd hate to tell um, an art lover to climb Cradle Mountain and I'd hate to tell a bushwalker to uh, or, you know, a mountain biker to that they must do Mona. So, you know, there's uh, it really depends on what they're into. But yeah. we're fortunate to have so many world-class experiences here and, um, you know, and they keep happening more and more. So that's exciting. Yeah, really well answered. Hey, we're going to put you on the Overland track, a backpack full of GK and beers, of course, for five days. You're allowed to take three other people with you, anyone in the world, famous, not famous, living or dead. Who are they and why? Well, you know what? Uh, I've, I've started off with Jim Morrison, the uh, lead singer of The Doors. Mm-hmm. I was always a bit of a fan of The Doors um, growing up. He was a bit of a teenage hero of mine. Um, I just love to meet the guy, really. He's a was a real poet. I'd probably find him fairly uh, challenging to, to talk to these days, I suppose. <laughs> um, but uh, I don't know. It'd just be great to spend some time with him and get inside his head. You got two others or is it just Jim? 
No, no, two others. Uh, my dad, definitely, um, you know, my, my brother and my dad have been doing quite a few walks um, over the last few years while I've been doing, well, quite a few years while I've been doing uh, Willie Smith's. So I've been too busy with young children and and the business to join them. But, um, you know, whether they've, you know, they've done Kokoda and the South Coast track and they've done the Overland track and a couple of others as well. And, you know, so having my dad along to spend some time with him and, and do some bushwalking with him would be great. Uh, and then finally, I think my wife, because we don't get to spend enough time together without kids and five days without the kids spending that time together would be great. Yeah, nice. This uh, next question might be redundant in light of what you've just said about the doors, but if you're road tripping around Tasmania, what are you listening to in the car? Oh, yeah. Genesis Awusu actually is floating my boat right now. All right, um, cool. Yeah, he's an amazing artist from Canberra. He's just um, done his first uh, US and Europe tour. 24-year-old, um, get on him. He's incredible. All right. You heard it here first from Sam Reed. Thank you so much. When you arrive at your destination, what are you going to have to drink? Uh, what's the weather doing? Uh, you know? Let's go with something similar to today. So the skies are blue, but it is extremely fresh and crisp out there. Oh, well, it would have to be something local. So, um, you know, it is going to depend on where I'm at. But, you know, a stout's probably looking pretty good right yeah, now than I would have thought. So, yeah. Nice. Last question for you, Sam. The the big one, it's our big debate, and it's about curry Tasmanian scallops. Are they a culinary delight or a culinary crime? Culinary delight. <sighs> Ross Bakery, scallop pie, always makes it on my to-do list when I'm telling people what to do. Maybe that's um, your um, must-do while people are in Tasmania for the first time in their lives. Yes, you've Head got to, to, Ross you've got to have a, pie. a scallop pie okay. at the Ross Bakery if you can. So, yeah. Well, I wholeheartedly disagree, but thank you very much for your opinion. <laughs> I think at some point we need to do a tally of these and see where we're sitting. Yeah, it would be interesting, definitely. We'll add you to the delight. Thank you so much, Sam, for your time. Really appreciate it. And to our listeners, thank you for listening to today's episode of Talking Tourism. Remember, you can subscribe to hear more episodes. We're releasing them roughly every two weeks. And we'd love for you to also let a friend or a tourism colleague know about Talking Tourism so that they can check our podcasts out as well. Talking Tourism is an initiative of Tourism Industry Council Tasmania and today's episode was brought to you with the support of our partner NRMA Expeditions. A big thanks also goes to Caleb Miller at Mac40, our audio specialist who produces these episodes. I'm your host, Emma Azon-Giacometti, and look forward to chatting next time on Talking Tourism.